Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Matthew chapter 24 and beginning to read at verse 23. Speaking of reports of his return, Jesus says, At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or, here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now we turn on to page 1189 in the Pew Bibles page 1189, and we're reading from Paul's, the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonian Christian Fellowship, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading at verse 3. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen, thank you very much for reading. Uh, Do please uh, keep uh, the second of those two readings open in front of you. And uh, something else I think you'll find helpful uh, for the next few few moments is to grab hold of this um, handout, uh, sermon outline. Even if you don't like taking notes, you'll be able to see where we're going. And I think that will help you to follow along as well. Well, with those things in our hands, uh, let me pray for us now. Now, Father, we thank you very much indeed that we've been able to think about and indeed sing about already the final judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ, that final hour, that final day, uh, that day when all rebellious, uh, uh, all rebellions will, will fall. Uh, we thank you for that day when he will be seen to be powerful and all triumphant. And we pray that we would see this morning why that is such a very good day to be looking forward to. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the the last few weeks, high-profile historic legal cases have made their way back into the news because families of victims have relentlessly pushed for justice. I'm thinking of the 1989 Hillsborough Stadium disaster resulting in the death of 96 people and the death of 28 civilians in 1972 in Derry in Northern Ireland on the day that is now known as Bloody Sunday. Now, whatever we think of the the rights and wrongs of those events, all these years on, families are looking for justice for their loved ones. And I imagine that in time, the families of recent tragedies will want the same. I I think of the 157 people who died when the Ethiopian airline Boeing 737 crashed earlier this month, uh, and the 50 people who were shot dead in Christchurch, New Zealand last week, and the three teenagers who lost their life uh, last Sunday at a St. Patrick's Day party at the Greenvale Hotel in Dungannon, County Tyrone. I imagine... Families of these dear people, if not now, in the future, will, will seek justice. They'll want to know if those deaths could have been avoided and if there were people who were responsible. And if so, they'll want to see those people punished. Now, while we may never have been involved in anything nearly as traumatic as any of those high-profile cases, we will know in our own lives that when we have been wronged, we want justice to be done. But you don't need me to tell you that... Uh, Living in a broken world, not only do these terrible things happen, but sometimes we don't see justice done. And that is why the Christian doctrine of the return of Jesus Christ is such a wonderful and precious truth. Because when Jesus returns, he will put all wrongs right. 
He will bring about perfect, perfect justice in all things. We said it earlier in the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's the most glorious truth of the most perfect justice. Even those who've died will be judged. Those who, who seemingly have gotten away with murder, those who all their lives escaped the justice of the human law courts, will be raised to face the judgment of Jesus Christ one day. So when we think of people who committed historic crimes like sex abuse, but died before their crimes were revealed or believed, the, tr- the, the truth of the return of Christ tells us they have not got away with it because the one who sees everything and knows everything will judge everything and everyone with perfect equity. The return of Jesus is a wonderful and deeply reassuring truth. But for the Thessalonians, there was great confusion. Do you recall if you were here last week, and if you weren't, then chapter 2, verse 2 tells us this. They had received a report, supposedly a report from the Apostle Paul, although it wasn't. They'd received a report saying that Jesus had already returned that the day of the Lord had already come, that in some way Jesus had slipped into this world unannounced. And that report left the Thessalonian Christians in a spin. If Jesus has returned, where's the justice he promised? And boy, did they want justice. Remember from last week, they were suffering just because they were Christians. In chapter one, verse four, Paul commended them for persevering through persecution and trials. I was um, I sent an article this week uh, which suggested that the, the persecution of Christians around the world is, is on the rise. The report said that, I quote, some assessments claim that as many as 200 million Christians in over 60 countries around the world face some degree of restriction, discrimination or outright persecution, end of quote. The persecution of Christian believers is certainly not something consigned to history past, Did you know there were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined? And it seems that measure of persecution is continuing into the 21st century. Today, many Christians are suffering just because they follow Christ. Now, here's the question. What keeps you going when you're being seriously persecuted for your faith? Answer, because you believe there's something better to come one day and that one day all wrongs will be put right. So imagine the confusion for these dear Christians in Thessalonica. They were being persecuted for being followers of Jesus. Then this report came that Jesus had returned, but their situation hadn't changed. So they were bound to be asking, why are we still suffering persecution, and why aren't those who persecute us being judged? And so in this first chapter... Paul instructs the Thessalonians about the return of Christ. He assures them of the justice of God and he encourages them to keep living a life worthy of being Christian. In short, this chapter was written to give us assurance to keep going through tough times. Which is why the first thing Paul does is reassure the Christians in Thessalonica that they are real Christians and that they have a great future to look forward to. The first point on the handout, your future's secure, keep going, verses three to five. Last week, we saw how Paul thanked God that the Thessalonians were doing three things. Do you remember it? They were growing in their faith, verse three. They're increasing in their love for each other, verse three. And they were persevering through trials, verse four. 
And we saw that last week. And I've got to say, I've been encouraged this week as I've thought about person after person in this church family who is growing in their faith, in their trust of Jesus. And I found myself thankful this week as I've thought about how we as a church family are loving each other. And what a thing it is to see Christians here in this church family going through the most difficult, challenging trials of life but carrying on with Jesus. So I found myself thanking God often this week, just as the Apostle Paul Thank God for the Thessalonians. Thankful because these are marks of genuine Christian faith which gives us assurance of a guarantee of the future. See, look at verse five. Paul writes, all this, that is, all this in verses three and four, all that we were looking at last week, growing faith, increasing love, persevering trials, all this, verse five, is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Do you see what he's saying? God will be right to count you, the Thessalonians, worthy of the kingdom of God. God will be right in in, in giving you the kingdom of God because you're living as real Christians, verses three and four. That's evidence that you are real Christians, that you will be in the kingdom of God, the kingdom for which, end of verse five, you are suffering. See, the Christians in Thessalonica were beginning to wonder if it was worth following Jesus because if he'd returned, nothing had changed. So Paul reassures them, you are real Christians. You will be included in the kingdom of God. There's something much better to come, so keep going. Second, he writes, God is just, so keep going. This is verses six to 10. See, having now reassured the Christians that they would be part of the kingdom of God, next Paul assures them that God is just, that the day of justice is coming, is still to come, that those who persecute Christians are going to face judgment. Verse six, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. See, the thing about this is that the the Christians in Thessalonica's doctrine was right. They believed that when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and and the dead. They believed that justice would be done. On that day, Christians will be relieved of their suffering and persecution and trials will endure. Their doctrine was right, but their timing was wrong. Halfway through verse 7. Paul writes, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Remember, they'd already received a report saying Jesus has already come. No, he says, it's still to come, this day of judgment. Verse seven, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The report they'd received about the return of Christ was premature. When Jesus comes, everyone will know it. He will be revealed from heaven. Do you see it there in verse seven? In blazing fire and with his powerful angels. We heard it in the first of our two readings from Matthew chapter 24. Jesus himself said that when he returns, there will be no question about it. He will come visibly on the clouds of the sky. He will come globally. All nations of all the earth will see him. He will come majestically with power and great glory. And when he, turn, when he returns, he will bring about the justice that is so longed for and so needed in this tragedy-filled, unjust world. Look at verse eight. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Those are immense words. 
They tell us who will be punished. They tell us the nature of the punishment. But perhaps before we can really begin to engage with those things, we find ourselves asking, is this fair? Is this the action of a just God, everlasting destruction? Shut out from the presence of the Lord forever? Before we can look at the details of verses 8 and 9, I think we need to stop a moment and consider whether eternal punishment can be right. Is it fair? Is it just? Now, I have three thoughts to help us grapple with that, that, that very question, the fairness of eternal punishment. And if you look over the page, I've listed them down, one, two, and three. So we're just stopping for a moment, looking at the text, and we're just trying to think, is it right? Is it, how can eternal judgment be just? Because I think until we've got that clear, we can't move on. Here's the first of the three thoughts that might help us. Uh, the punishment fits the crime. When we hear of a severe punishment, we can respond in two ways. You know, if you hear on the news that somebody's just been given a life imprisonment, you can respond in one of two ways. You can either think that the punishment is too harsh, they should never be given that punishment, or you can conclude that the crime must be very bad for the punishment to be that severe. Now, when it comes to the eternal punishment that's listed here, knowing that God is just, as it says in verse 6, tells us that the punishment can't be too harsh. God can't give a harsh punishment. It's beyond him. He just can't do it. Therefore, we have to conclude the severity of the punishment tells us that the crime is extremely bad. But here's the thing. I guess most of us, I include myself in this, very much I include myself in this, I guess most of us don't grasp the severity of our crime, which is why we find the punishment so difficult. We don't see the enormity of our sin against the holy and eternally loving God. Uh, look, we, we have all rejected the eternal God. We have pushed him out of our lives. All of us have declared independence from him, even though he gave us everything. You know, he gave us life. The only reason any of us are alive is because of him. He sustains our lives. Every breath we take comes from him. The fact that your heart and mine is still beating today is because of him. He gives us all the good things we enjoy. Food and clothes and peace and fun and celebration and people and families and laughter and enjoyment and colours and flowers and seasons and sun and look, I could go on and on. He gives us everything. He gives us everything and yet we push him out. Without him, we are nothing. We cannot survive without him but we don't want him in our lives. We don't want him ruling our lives. We don't want his loving care. We regale against his fatherly discipline. We reject his wise direction. In short, our crime against divinity is the most terrible thing we can do in our lives. And yet we've all done it. And if we want to know how bad our crime is, look at the cross. Because it took the sacrificial death of Jesus to deal with our crime. So when we look at the punishment that Jesus suffered... When we look at the words here of the punishment, described here as everlasting destruction, being shut out from the presence of God, when we see that, rather than think God is harsh, rather than think the punishment is unfair, we should be thinking God is just. 
the punishment fits the crime, the crime must be much worse than I've ever grasped. The punishment fits the crime. Secondly, the length of the punishment fits the severity of the crime. One of the, uh, the arguments against eternal punishment is we sin for 70 years, but we're punished for eternity. How can that be right? Well, just think about our own justice system and how it operates for a moment. It may take someone only a few minutes to commit murder. If it's premeditated, it may take days, weeks, months. But however long it takes to commit the murder, we don't base the length of the punishment on the time it took to commit the crime. Murder is not met by a punishment based on how long it took to commit the murder, but rather on how serious the crime is. We give life imprisonment for murder, even if it only took a short while to commit the crime. So we may reject our almighty and eternal God and Father for 70 years, but that is such a serious crime, it deserves an eternal punishment. The punishment fits the crime, the length of the punishment fits the severity of the crime. And third, the punishment continues as the crime continues. You see, the Bible teaches us that it is God alone who enables us to repent of our sin. God has to work in us to enable us to turn away from our rebellion against him. We are so rebellious, we wouldn't do it on our own. But in eternity, if we have rejected him, verse 9, we will be shut out from his presence. And so for eternity, because God will not step in to enable anyone to repent... The crime against divinity will continue. Even imprisoned in eternity, people will continue to reject God. And so the punishment will continue. The punishment continues as the crime continues. Now look, none of those things that I've just said, those three points that I've just said, come directly out of these verses. What we've just been doing in the last few minutes is bring together some important Christian doctrine to help us to realise that God is just and help us to see how eternal punishment is right, or at least how it could be right if you're grappling with it. And we've thought about that for a few moments, just stepped out of the text for a moment. We've done that for a few moments in order to, to, to clear the way for us to then consider these verses because what these verses say are extremely hard. Hard to hear, that is. There are two things that these verses say. Again, they're listed uh, on the handout. Uh, Verses eight and nine. Verse eight tells us who will be punished. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Now look, uh, verse 8 is not describing two different groups of people. It's not as if there's a bunch of people who don't know God and a bunch of people who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These are not two groups of people, but rather two ways of talking about the same type of people. We come to know God through obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So if we don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we don't know God. When we do know God, it's because we are obeying the gospel of the Lord Jesus. One group of people. So verse 8 Jesus will punish those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It is precisely what we, we, we will be remembering as we meet together over the Easter weekend in a few weeks' time. As we've already said, we deserve God's punishment, all of us. As we've already considered, we're all guilty of the greatest crime in the universe. We take everything that God wants to give us, all the good things he gives us, we push him out of our lives. 
Just imagine living with someone like that. Imagine going into a relationship where you contributed everything to the relationship. You buy the house, you earn the money, you do the shopping and the cooking, you provide all the fun and entertainment, you're the one who books and pays for the holidays and arranges them all, your other half does nothing, and not only that, they then kick you out of the house. They don't answer your texts, they don't want to talk to you. Oh, apart from Christmas and Easter when they sit through an event you run for an hour or so. We treat God like that. We live in his world and willingly take all the things he gives us, but we don't want anything to do with him. And that deserves punishment. And that is why Easter is so wonderful. Because God loves us. The Lord Jesus never treated his father like that. He is the only one who ever walked this earth not to deserve God's punishment. And because he loves us so much, he says, I'll take the punishment in your place. I'll take the punishment that you deserve. And he did that so that we could know God personally and for eternity. It is a great loving thing. It is the most wonderful thing that we will remember in four weeks' time over Easter. But if we refuse to accept that rescue, the rescue that cost Jesus his life, then, verse 8, we will be punished. That's who will be punished. Secondly, what will the punishment be? Verse 9, everlasting destruction and being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. It is a terrifying prospect. Every good thing, every good thing that we have comes from God. Everything you and I enjoy in life comes from him. So to be shut out from his presence for eternity will be to be separated from every good thing. There will be no meaningful relationships in hell. No enjoyment. Because every good thing comes from him. No hope for the future. Eternal separation is a terrifying prospect. It must surely spur us on to want to share the gospel with people, to invite our friends along over Easter, for example. But that actually isn't the primary reason that Paul writes these words here. These things are written to assure Christians in Thessalonica that those who are persecuting them will be judged. This is to assure them God is just. See, all this is hard for us to hear. It would have in some ways been hard for the Thessalonians to hear, but they were being persecuted, and so this would have encouraged them. Their persecutors will be punished. Justice will be done. And what's more... They have a glorious future to look forward to. See, in verse 10, Paul assures the Thessalonian Christians that one day they will enjoy eternity with Jesus, which will be glorious. See, in verse 10, Jesus, when he returns, he will be objectively glorified. Do you see the word there? Marveled at, verse 10. When he comes, everyone will see how glorious he is. But also, verse 10, on the day he comes, he will be glorified in his holy people. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? On that day, Christians will be transformed and we will display his glory. We will be changed to fully reflect his image. We suddenly will be glorious. And he writes all this, Paul writes all this to say, keep going, it'll be worth it. It'll be more than worth it. 
So having written to encourage them to keep going, and finally, briefly, Paul tells them that he constantly prays for them to keep going. This is verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. I mentioned last week how this letter is full of the prayers of Paul for the Thessalonians. I said last week how through this short series we will learn how to pray, how Paul prayed, biblical prayers, it's wonderful. Last week we saw that Paul was thankful in prayer and specifically thankful for signs of growing faith and increasing love and and persevering through trials. Here we see not thankfulness in prayer but now constancy in prayer. See that in verse 11? Uh, With this in mind, we constantly pray. That doesn't mean that he didn't do anything but pray. Paul was an activist. He did so much with his life. He didn't just sit in a monastery and pray all day. No, constant in prayer means he constantly prayed for the same things. He persistently prayed about the things that he mentions here. And so, just as we saw that last week, thankfulness in prayer is an important thing. Uh, Constant prayer is an important thing to mark our praying as well. I can imagine that some of you do pray constantly. That is, that you pray regularly, often for the same thing. Perhaps we have bad health and we find ourselves constantly praying for God to heal us. And maybe we, we, we face a, a tough situation and we find ourselves daily, constantly praying for the Lord to change our circumstances or our situation. Constant, persistent prayer is a, is a Christian way of praying. It's, it's good to pray like that. But the challenge here is what Paul is constantly praying about. This is verses 11 and 12. And you can really understand, I think, I began to understand verse 11 when I looked at verse 12 because we see in verse 12 the goal of the prayer that is in verse 11. See how he prays in verse 12. We pray this, that is verse 11, so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. It's what we see at the end of verse, in verse 10 that final glory that we can look forward to when Jesus returns, on that day, do you remember we just said, that we will be transformed into a repeat people who reflect the glory of Christ. And so now Paul is praying on, in verse 11 that between now and when Jesus returns, his goal of his prayer is that we will be now more and more what we will be then. Understand that? Let me explain. That we be changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus so that when people see us even now, his glory will be seen. And when people see his glory in us, he will be glorified. That's verse 12. The Lord Jesus glorified in you and you in him. And so this constant prayer for the Christians is, a, is to live a life, verse 11, worthy of the calling. That is worthy of being Christians it is very striking that Paul doesn't constantly pray that the persecution would end or that their struggles would be taken away or that they would have an easy life. No, he prays that they would live through the struggles of life in a way worthy of being called Christian, that they would become more like Jesus through the struggles of life. That is verse 12. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. When we were talking about this as a staff team this week, one, one of the members of the team said this, and this was most helpful. Paul clearly loves the Thessalonian Christians 
and his love for them makes, his, um, it makes him ambitious for them. He doesn't just want them to keep going through struggles, and he doesn't pray for the struggles to be taken away so that they'll have an easy life, but he prays for them to live a life worthy of being called Christians. He prays for them to become more Christ-like. That's how we should pray constantly for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters that we would keep growing in faith and love and perseverance as we saw last week until the day Jesus returns, that we keep going through hard times and become more like Jesus through even the hard times, knowing that one day all wrongs will be put right, justice will be done, we'll be counted worthy of his kingdom, and then we will finally be changed to be like him, to enjoy all eternity, seeing him as he really is. That is such an exciting prospect. So keep going and pray often, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, difficult as many of these words are to hear, we thank you that they are written as an encouragement to us an encouragement that you are a God of justice, that you are not turning a blind eye to all the injustices in this world, an encouragement that um, you will keep us going, an encouragement to keep going until that final day, knowing that the the struggle is worth it. And so we pray you would indeed uh, encourage our hearts today to keep pressing on through all the, uh, the, the downs as well as the ups of life. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.